0: Okay, let's take a look. We're in Acts 21. At the end of Acts 21, we left off last week. Um, on the overhead, you'll see uh, the, uh, the travels of Paul, which have brought him back to Jerusalem. You see at the bottom there, he's in. He's made his way from, uh, uh, from his third missionary journey. He's completed three trips over into Europe and Asia, and he's come back, and he's now in Jerusalem. Uh, if we go back and review, what we saw last week is that having arrived in Jerusalem... Paul came to James, and this is James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, who became a Christian later in life after Jesus was resurrected. He became the leader of the early, of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, It was great, was among the many elders that were there. He was very, very famous and powerful in that area. Paul came to James, and they agreed to pay the, or Paul agreed through James to pay the Nazarite vows of four unnamed men at the temple would have cost him a lot of money, but this is the way that he would go into the temple and show all the Jews that Paul's not talking against the law. He's still keeping the law. Note that. I remember Bernadette said something about that in the past when we were looking at it, was I didn't realize they kept keeping the law, and they did. It is something to think about because Paul never says the law is over, get rid of it. The law is, is wonderful and to be used and you and I can take certain parts of it and become sanctified, draw holy or draw unto God and holiness by keeping the law insofar as we don't ever tell people you have to do this in order to be saved. Some people do. They won't, they won't eat the foods that's, that are forbidden in the Old Testament. You know a few people like that? Well, the Old Testament says I'm not to eat bacon or, or, or swine or anything. Hey, that's, that's on them. If you want to live your life not eating good food, you have every right to do that. Cheeseburgers, bacon double cheeseburgers. How do you, how do you live without that? But the, There you go. Which is a great illustration because you're not big and, and crazy. Yeah, you're still alive. But some people do that. In fact, there are people called Hebraic Christians. They try to take on the, the old law and keep it. The only problem is, is when you begin to say, I do this, I'm better than you, you need to do this. It's called legalism. So, Paul is keeping the law. He's never told anyone not to keep the law. He's only told people not to keep the law in the sense of, he's told the the Gentiles, you don't have to keep the law to be Christians. Sorry, Mark. A a Messianic Jew, is that similar? A Messianic Messianic Jew is a Jew who believes in Jesus as the Messiah. Now, they're not a a strict group that they all do the same thing. They're just Jews that have become Christians. Some might be in our church. some might continue on with the Jewish traditions because they, they had such a, a, a rich upbringing in it. Nothing wrong with that. As long as they don't say, you have to do that too. As long as they don't say, you must do this to be saved. It's just something that they practice. What about the Hellenistic Jews? Okay, Hellenistic Jew would have been someone who is um, uh, either a Jew who grew, yeah, it's, it's not either. It is a Jew who did not grow up in Palestine. They were Hellenized, which, as you probably know, means to be uh, adopt Greek culture. And so Hellenized Jews were separated from Judaic Jews because the Judaic Jews, they grew up there. It's like, it's like having parents that are from Texas and you saying, well, I'm from Texas. Well, those of us who are from Texas know better. We're from Texas. <laughs> we're real Texans. You just came in and adopted this as your state. And that's kind of the same thing. Well, you know, we're receiving a lot of people. A lot of people say, you know, I'm from New York, but I got to Texas as fast as I could. Just don't (laughs) vote like you did in New York. While in the temple, some Jews from Ephesus. So Paul's there in the temple. He's doing what James has asked him to do. He's in full agreement with him. While there, some Jews from Ephesus. It's Pentecost. So Jews everywhere have made their way to Jerusalem. And the Jews from Ephesus accuse Paul. The text says Jews from Asia, but we believe they're from Ephesus. It's the same place. They accused Paul of bringing a Gentile into the temple, uh, one of Paul's friends named Trophimus. Paul would never bring a Jew, into the, bring a Gentile into the temple. He knew better. Gentiles knew better. Paul would never do this. He's trying to show the Jews he's still Jewish, hasn't lost his Judaic, Judaic flavor. Why would he bring a, a Gentile in? He didn't. He was just accused of it. We looked at that last week, people accusing others of things that didn't happen, misunderstanding them along the way. But they accuse him of it. They caused a riot and began beating Paul senselessly. The text says, seeking to kill him. I want you to imagine the scene. Paul goes into the temple. He's doing the best he can. He's trying to show the Jews that he's not against Judaism. And some guy says, you brought a Gentile into the temple. He begins to push him around, shove him. What are you doing this for this man for? He brought a Jew. He brought a Gentile into the temple. And then there's this huge breakout. They're trying to kill him. They're beating him. Imagine Paul on the ground getting kicked, spit upon, beat up. About to be killed from the Antonian fortress, which is right sits above the uh, all the, the Temple Mount. I showed you the picture of it last week. The commander, whom we will learn later, his name is Claudius Lysias. He emerged, and the commander here is a um, it's a rank. There's you got your centurions, and you've got your uh, your uh, oh gosh, it's called commander in the text, but tribune, tribune. I think it's tribune. Anyway, I've already forgotten it. I was going to teach it to you, and I've already forgotten it. But Centurion's over 100, and this commander's over 1,000, Claudius Lysias. He's a higher-ranking official. He emerges from the Antonian Fortress, and he's seeking to understand why Paul is being beaten. Giving Paul permission to speak to the crowd, Paul attempted to help the Jews understand his mission, and he would fail. So in the end of chapter 21, as Paul is at verse 37, as Paul is about to be brought into the barracks, <clears throat> he said to the commander, that word commander means Kiliarch. And that's what it means. Kiliarch is Greek for Kili. Kilios means a thousand. Archaeos is, is a ruler, a ruler of a thousand. Because It's just translated commander, at least in the New American Standard Bible. What is, what's translated in another translation? Say commander. Verse 37, is there another translation you have for commander? Tribune. Tribune. Yeah, that's what I thought. Tribune tribune is the same as commander it's the it's the leader of a thousand different than a than a uh, centurion get it century 100 uh, over 100 anyway so he asks the commander may i say something to you now this is a man who's been on the ground beaten he's bleeding bruised hair's probably a mess and he comes up and and i think the commander expects paul to just kind of murmur out something like some drunk in the crowd would murmur out but paul is a very highly trained, educated, well-spoken man. And when he speaks, he says, may I say something to you? And he apparently speaks so clearly and so eloquently that the man asks him, you know Greek? You must know Greek if you're able to speak this way. So he assumes he's an Egyptian, this Egyptian that we looked at last week and one that had led this this uh, party to kind of overtake Jerusalem, uh, led 4,000 men, uh, Josephus says there were 30,000 Probably 30,000 followers, 4,000 that went in and they were, were uh, put to death, 4,000. But this particular Egyptian got away. Uh, Paul says, no, that's not me. Verse 39, I am a Jew of Tarsus and Cilicia, a very cultured city from Tarsus. Cilicia is a territory. Tarsus is a city, a citizen of no insignificant city. And I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. So the man, this Kiliarch, this uh, commander, tribune, pulls back, wow. Okay, I'll let you speak. He seems to have, to have some sort of clout. When he heard him, he gave him permission. Paul standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand, just probably a hand in the air. He probably was a sight to behold, having been beat up to some degree. Don't know how far he was into getting beat up, but he's at least able to get up and talk to the people. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect. Now, this is most likely Aramaic. Aramaic and Hebrew are very similar. Everyone in Israel spoke Aramaic. Only the at this time, although Hebrew is the language of the Jews, most of the Jews lost that that language when they went into captivity in Babylon. They came back and they began to speak. They mostly spoke Aramaic. Only their religious leaders, <clears throat> excuse me, typically spoke Hebrew. So he's speaking Aramaic, and we don't know that Claudius Lysias can understand Aramaic. It's the kind of the language of the day. Um, Claudius Lysias would have spoken Latin, the Roman language, and Greek. Uh, But we don't know. Maybe he probably doesn't understand anything that's being said. But when the people hear him speaking in Aramaic, this Hebrew dialect, they all hush. It would be kind of like most people don't even know why they're beating Paul up or why they're calling for his death. Same way they did Jesus. But when this man stands up, who's got his hair all messed up, and maybe some blood coming out of his nose and head, and he begins to speak eloquently in their language, whoo, everybody hushes. that That's kind of a, a dramatic scene. Wow, this guy needs to be heard. Brethren and fathers. He doesn't say, you bunch of losers who are rejecting me for no good reason. It, there's a tenderness in his voice. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense. That word for defense in the Greek text is the word Apologia. It's where we get the word apologetics. It means to make a defense. It doesn't mean to say, I'm sorry. He wants to make a defense. Paul is very naive at this point. Maybe after this, he would say, look, I'm not sure you should go too far in giving your defense of things. I tried it once. Didn't work out too well. But he's going to give a defense, which shows you that, you know, last week I talked about when somebody has a misunderstanding about you, you can get all crazy and defend yourself real loud. Or you can suck it up, say nothing, and let them think they're right. Or I think the best option is to speak your peace and then let it go. Paul is going to speak his peace. It's okay to defend yourself in some situations. Listen, brethren and fathers, I'm going to give you my defense of what's going on here. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. By the way, the, the, the years around AD 57, Jesus would have died around 14 years prior. It would have been remembered that Jesus died. Paul became, he was a a well-known Pharisee in the day. People would have known Paul, but he's introducing himself again. It's been a long time, perhaps, since he's there. I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, and this is his testimony. He's talking about the past. If you've ever been to a membership class that I've given here, I'll tell you, give me your testimony, and I'll tell you to do three things. Tell me about who you were in the past. Tell me about how you came to know Christ and tell me about what your life has been like since you came to know Christ. This is what Paul is going to do. He's going to share his testimony in hopes that it's some kind of defense that the people will go, okay, now we understand. Here's who I am. I was born a Jew in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city, that is Jerusalem, educated under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a famous um, Uh, Rabbi of the day, in fact, Gamaliel was so famous, he was the grandson of a man named Hillel, who was the most famous uh, rabbi of the day, who began what's called the school of Hillel, H-I-L-L-E-L. This school that the Pharisees went to, Gamaliel was famous not only in the Bible, but outside the Bible, and Paul was trained under him. He was trained strictly according to the law of our fathers, that would be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. So Paul is saying, I'm one of you. If I'm being accused of not being from Texas, and I come in, and I've, whatever it might be, and I come in and say, brethren, I was, I was born in Herman Hospital in Houston, Texas, 1968. I, I grew up under parents. One was from Dallas, one was from Anahuac, Texas. And we are, I'm a Texan of Texans. I say y'all, and, and yee-haw, and all that, and people might, okay, I get it, that he is one of us. That's kind of what's going on here. He's relating to them. They're able to relate to him. And he tells them, not only that, I was being zealous for God, just as you all are today. In other words, Paul is saying, I know exactly how you feel about me. I know why you feel about me this way, because I, too, was zealous for the law of God against this way. It's what he says. I persecuted this way, and ways is capitalized. Um, uh, he's uh, the way. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. The way is, what was, is how you refer to Christianity. It's spoken of elsewhere in the New Testament. And he's saying, at that time, as a good Jew, I persecuted this way. To, to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. And also, as also, the high priest and all the council of elders can testify. Remember, Paul got his summons, or I should say his permission, to go from Jerusalem up to Damascus from the high priest. Go up there and arrest everyone you know up there in that church that are hiding out there. Bring them back here. We'll put them to death. We'll try them. And he's saying, the council of the elders can testify to this. From them, I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. So that's Paul saying, that's who I was. He's identifying with the crowd. And the crowd is listening. When you give your testimony... And I say, when, as part of the gospel presentation, do it in such a way as you understand how the person feels. You understand why they do what they do, why they don't do what they don't do. You, you say, they might say, well, I don't want to go to church. And you say, you know what? There's a time and I felt the same way you did. I hated going to church. I had a lady come to me one time and she was saying, uh, her, her son will never go to church. And she said, how can I get him to church? What can I do to get him to church? And uh, I said, well, you know, if he doesn't want to come to church, he's not going to come to church. And it wasn't a child. This was an adult um her adult son and, and she said well there's got to be a way and I said I'll tell you what and I knew she didn't like baseball because she had told me somehow or another I knew she didn't like baseball I said if I had two tickets to the Astros game to give to you for you and your husband uh David was his name I said uh, would you go and she she kind of did this no I said they're good seats I love baseball Baseball's exciting the Astros are a good team I said that feeling you had right there that's exactly how your son feels about going to church I don't think so, mom. You can tell him all you want about how great the preaching is, music is, whatever it is, people. It, just like you don't want to go to that baseball game, he doesn't want to go to church. Paul is saying, I know how you feel. I was you. So when you share your testimony, connect with the person you're preaching to. Learn a little bit about him, maybe. Say, I, I get it. I was that way. That's what Paul's just done. But something happened to Paul. We were first read about it in Acts chapter 9, verse 6. Well, we first read about it in chapter 9, now in 22.6, he says, but it happened that as I was on my way, that is on my way to Damascus to, to arrest Christians, approaching Damascus about noontime, he doesn't say it was noontime in Acts 9, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, the, the repetition of his name, kind of like we saw Sunday with Martha, Martha, Martha. You're concerned about a lot of things. This is not God yelling at Saul. It's a compassion for this lost soul. Saul, Saul. And Paul hears him say, or Saul, this is before he changed his name to Paul. The voice says, why are you persecuting me? Which is always interesting to me because did Saul go to Damascus to persecute Jesus? He went to Damascus to persecute and arrest Christians. To which Jesus is saying, you mess with my people, you mess with me. Why are you persecuting me? Why would you hate me? And Paul Paul says in his testimony here in verse 8, I answered, who are you, Lord? Now, although in my version, Lord is capitalized, I don't think Saul slash Paul is calling the Lord Jesus Lord. It's really more of a, who are you, sir? Who are you? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene. Whom you are persecuting. Now, in Acts 9, verse 5, when Paul first shares this, he doesn't say that it's Jesus the Nazarene. He just says Jesus answered him. Here, to this hostile crowd that killed Jesus in that town, it's like he's asking for more. He said, I I am Jesus the Nazarene. No one liked anyone from Nazareth, especially the one that thought that he was the Messiah. Claim to be the Messiah. He said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. Verse 9. And those who were with me saw the light, Paul says, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. So they saw whoever was with Paul uh, on that trip, saw the light, heard voices, but didn't understand the voices. They were witnesses to this. Verse 10. And Paul says, I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up. Go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that has been appointed for you to do. I want you to note that in that word appointed. God is calling perhaps the worst of the worst, the most hateful person to Christianity, up to that day. God has just called, and he has an appointment, or he has appointed him to do. And we know what Paul became. So think about that in terms of people today that you know so loathe the Christian faith. I think of Richard Dawkins. People like Richard Dawkins. The atheists out there. They so that's, That was the apostle Paul. When you hear Richard Dawkins talk about how much he hates Christianity. Think of Saul of Tarsus. Might have even been worse. And God changes him like that. Appears. Who are you Lord? I'm Jesus. Did he tell you that? At some point in your life? By the way, I'm Jesus. I'm not just that, the, the, the punchline you use my name in or the curse word you use my name with when you miss a three-foot putt. I am God. Go into Damascus, Saul. I'll tell you everything that's appointed for you to do. Verse 11. Paul continues speaking in the first person. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. So right here in his testimony, he's telling me, here's what God did. He broke me down. I went as this arrogant, angry person to hurt Christians. And then I was reduced to a blind man needing my own other men to hold my hand and guide me. He continues in verse 12, a certain Ananias, I believe that, That everyone in Israel and certainly in Jerusalem would have known this Ananias. By the way, the high priest at this point is named Ananias. But these are two different people. We met Ananias in Acts 9. And Paul brings up his name here. Certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who live there, came to me and standing near me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. Again, this is Paul's testimony to a hostile crowd. And they're continuing to listen. Up to this point. And at that very time I looked at him. I looked up at him and said, and he said, here's what Ananias says. It's a very good passage to underline in your Bible. Here's what Ananias says. You rotten, no good fool. I can't believe God would save you. He kind of said that to God when God talked to Ananias in Acts 9. Uh, God told Ananias, "I'm, I'm sending Saul to you. And Ananias knew him. He said, Lord, he's persecuted our people. God said, nevertheless, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. Verse 14, and he said, this is Ananias speaking to Saul. The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. The only people that can be called apostle, that can be included in the, the list of the office of apostles are those who have seen the risen Lord Jesus. That means no one in the modern day can do that. Saul was the last one to see the risen Lord Jesus. He wasn't just the 12 that Jesus talked with. James apparently saw the risen Lord Jesus and Saul himself, Saul slash Paul. But look at what he says. This is the sovereignty of God. God. Saul is saying through Ananias, Ananias said the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, has appointed you, you, appointed you, to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. Seeing, hearing, knowing God's sovereignty. For you will be a witness, that Greek word is martyr, You will be a martyr, not dying for the faith, although Paul did, a witness. That's what a martyr is. It's a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Again, the people remain quiet. They're listening to Saul's testimony. And Ananias continues in verse 16. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, if you don't read that properly in a literal version, you're going to say, okay, here's how you get saved. You get baptized Your sins are washed away in that body of water, and then you call on God's name. No. Everything happens simultaneously. It's calling on his name. Get up and be baptized. Really, in fact, the middle voice says, get up and get yourself baptized. Calling on his name. Your sins are washed away. Go get yourself baptized. And we know from Acts 9, Ananias baptized. So when a person comes to know Christ, God regenerates their soul. God regenerates brings to life a dead person, spiritually dead. It's all God's prerogative. As it would be for a dead person today who's on the deck of a boat having swallowed too much water and drowned. They're on the deck of a boat. If someone doesn't foist themselves upon this person and flush the water out of their lungs and put oxygen into their lungs, they're gonna die. So we were dead in our sins and trespasses. This comes from Ephesians 2, as you probably know. Dead, not partially dead, Not mostly dead. We were dead in our trespasses and our sins. And God made us alive through Jesus Christ. This is what's just happened. Paul is is, is expressing this testimony. He made you alive. So when God makes one alive, we get up. You might even look for a body of water. I'm saved. Now, I want to be baptized. We look back in Acts chapter 10, verse 44 through 48. uh, We see that, The people, the Gentiles who came to know Christ were saved, fully saved, and then later they got baptized. Baptism isn't what saves. Baptism just signifies an outward symbol of what happened inwardly. That's what Paul tells him. That's part of his testimony. Ananias asks him, why do you delay? Get up. Get yourself baptized and wash away all your sins that is calling upon his name. So God makes us alive in Christ. We call upon his name. Previously, we only cursed Jesus' name or used him in a curse word, used his name in vain. Now, when we're made alive, we worship his holy name and we protect his name. We won't use his name unwisely or in vain. We go get baptized not to be saved, but because we are saved, knowing our sins have been washed away. So Paul continues in verse 17. The people are still listening. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem, and we read about this event in Acts chapter 9, verses 28 to 30, where Paul, after he was saved in Damascus, after he was baptized, he made his way down to Jerusalem. And he started arguing with some of the the Hellenistic Jews, telling them that Jesus was the Christ. Well, they wanted to kill him. He had to leave town. So he says there in verse 17, it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in a temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, make haste, that is Jesus is who he saw, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Now, I think this is interesting because God has the power to save Paul as he did, made him alive, appointed him to go and spread the word, make disciples of all nations. Why won't God do that for the people in Jerusalem? For all of them. Why won't God just do that for everybody? Why won't God just save everyone? Why do we need evangelists? Just save everybody. If you have the power to do that, Lord, why not do that for all? What's the answer? Because he's sovereign. It's his plan. sovereign is his plan, his world. Okay, I mean, that's, that's better than I would have said. I would have said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's not part of his plan. And so in the midst of saving people out of this, there's other people that are not saved out of it. Not yet. And so God tells Paul, and this is part of Paul's testimony, get out of town quickly. They won't accept my, your testimony. I know you think they will. I know you think, Paul, in your naivety, in your early days of being a Christian, you can go tell everyone about Jesus, and they're going to believe just like you. But how many of us young evangelists find that that's not the case? Not everyone's going to believe. In fact, no one might believe, no matter how much we tell them, and no matter how powerful our testimony is. Paul's testimony is pretty amazing. They didn't listen to him. So Jesus tells him to get out of town. Verse 19, and Saul said, or Paul, and I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat, the, and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I would imagine most people in the crowd remembered Stephen. It happened in Jerusalem. He was the first Christian martyr. And Paul is remembering this time. He says, I also was standing by approving. And watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So in other words, Paul has gone into the, to Jerusalem he's, he's, as part of his testimony. God said, get out. They're not going to receive my testimony through you. And even though Paul is saying, look, I used to be just like you. I understand how you feel. I understand that you hate people like me. I even helped kill Stephen, if you remember Stephen. God tells him anyway, get out, Paul. That was part of his fast testimony. And God told him there, get out of Jerusalem. There's no Gentiles in Jerusalem. I'm going to send you out to the Gentiles. People are quiet up to this point, but notice how they react on this last phrase. They listen to him up to this statement. And we, you might be going, what, what, wait a minute. What, I don't understand what fired them up so horribly they listened to him up to this statement and said, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. It wasn't, look, we want to respectfully disagree, Rabbi. It isn't, can you clarify such a statement? Kill him. Rid the earth of this man because he said what? Because he quotes God as saying, leave Jerusalem, go into the world, and I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Can you see Jewish hatred for Gentiles here? is illustrated nowhere in the Bible better than right here. In other words, what God is saying and what Jews don't want to hear, and by the way, it wasn't against Jewish precedent to go out and try to make Gentiles into Judaic converts. In fact, Jesus even says such in Matthew 23. He says, you'll go far and wide to make a convert of the Gentiles condemning the pharisees jews did they would go out some would go out as evangelists and try to make a gentile into a jew convert to Judaism, get circumcised obey our law you can be a a a proselyte and if you don't want to be circumcised you can just call yourself a god fearer but you're part of us now so they're not against bringing gentiles into the jew into the jewish faith What Paul is saying and quoting Jesus is essentially telling them, you're not saying that God wants you to go out and make make Gentiles into Jews. You're saying that Gentiles are on par with Jews. And we can't have that. We're God's chosen people. Gentiles are not. They're second class citizens. Paul, if you're saying that God sent you out to Gentiles, not to make them into Jews first and just to convert them to the Messiah, rid the earth of this guy. That is a Jewish attitude toward Christianity. We spent two weeks, those of us who went to Israel, with a a Jewish woman whom we all fell in love with. Uh, There is no, nothing about her we did not love. But she is not going to be with us in eternity. We tried. We did what we could. She listened. She agreed and disagreed. But in the end, she she wasn't having it. And all we we're telling her is the Messiah, spoken of in your scriptures, we as Gentiles have received. Why won't you? I just don't believe it. I just don't believe he's it. Either. Don't like that. We asked her all kinds of questions. Sharon just sent her a, you sent her Bible recently, right? She got a book with some scripture in it. And we all did. We all did the best we could. We loved her. We feel sorry for anyone who doesn't see the light as we've seen it. That's what Saul was doing. That's what we do when we share the gospel story's not over, is it? Right. Yeah. Any more so than Saul's was when God met him here. Hey, yeah, Marty? So, it's part of it, though, too, that the, that the Jews believe, because of their inheritance, their nationality, that they're righteous, right? That they're mm-hmm. saved. Yeah. And to take that away, to offer it to the Gentiles, too, would take that away from them. It might to some of them. To, in other words, to, if, <coughs> excuse me, if a Gentile was to believe as Jews believe that it somehow takes away from the Jewish privilege because they descend from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They have a a, a physical descent. Yeah. It's like saying that someone who's not from Texas can come here and just all of a sudden become a Texan. I know I've beat that dead horse, but that's kind of the same way those of us who are native Texans would go, sorry, no, but you can really. Once you live here and you got your citizenship here, it should be that way. (laughs) <laughs> Once you live here and, you, and you've got your, you know, you're, you're from Illinois or Iowa, Sharon is, and, and you're in Texas, you're a Texan. Um, and the Jews just didn't like that. And for those of us who don't have a descent from Abraham, um, it just seems like a, a strange avenue to become one of God's people for them. And that's putting it mildly to say strange. You didn't adopt me down here. And that's an interesting thing to say. He, he has adopted us. We are adopted into his family. I, I knew a lady. I didn't know a lady once. She's actually a, um, an aunt of mine through, through marriage. And uh, actually a cousin of mine through marriage. And uh, she had three sons. Her first son. She didn't think she could have children. And she, her first son, was Mitch. And she adopted Mitch. And she had two other sons. And when, when I first got to know her, I used to work for her in Dallas. She and I were very close and, and she said, you know, Lance, I wouldn't tell my sons this. So don't you, she said, but I'll tell you this. I love my first, my first son whom I adopted more than the other two sons that I had out of my own womb. And she said, the adoption of that young man of bringing him into my family and the way it works, she said, I just have to admit, I have a deeper affection for him. And she didn't treat the other ones with any, with any less love, no doubt. And, and I think I understood exactly what she's talking about. And so I would say the same thing, and and with what Sharon has said. Yes, we are adopted. God has adopted. We're the ones you really feel sorry for. Not that we feel sorry for adopted people at all. But Maybe in some sense you do. They didn't have a mother. They didn't have, they had a mother, but uh, they were given up for adoption or maybe their parents died or something. But there's something special going on there. And we were adopted. So it's a great way of looking at it, Sharon. Thanks for bringing it up. Chosen. Chosen. Chosen, adopted, appointed, right? Elected. Verse 23, and as they were crying out, (laughs) I don't know why I laugh at this. They're all angry because God said, I'll send you the Gentiles. Rid the earth of them, and as they were crying out, throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air. Is that not your child in Walmart? (laughs) Freaking out? Throwing it in the air. Holy mackerel. <laughs> the world is coming to a close. Verse 24, the commander ordered him. This is where things are getting out of order again. The commander, we know this man is Claudius Lysias. He's named in chapter 23, verse 26. The commander ordered him, that's Paul, to be brought into the barracks. So, Paul has shared who he was. He shared how he came to know Christ and what God sent him to do. What he's been doing. People didn't like it. They really didn't like it. And now they want him. They want to kill him again. And so the commander in verse 24 brought him, ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. I want you to know that that word for scourging um, is not something many people even survive. Um, If you survived, I was reading uh, about scourging years ago when Jesus was scourged is that if you survive scourging, you're never the same anyway. And so they're going to put Paul together. My guess is that Claudius Lysias has understood not a single word. Paul is speaking Aramaic. He doesn't know why the crowd, the crowd is quiet. He knows Paul has said something to rile up the crowd. They're all going crazy again, throwing dust into the air. Holy mackerel, this is a terrible time. He brings him in and wants to examine him. He's going to beat him. So that Paul tells him, tell me exactly what was said. Why are they wanting, why are they shouting against you? Verse 25. But when they stretched him out with thongs, by the way, Paul has been put in chains. He was put in chains we saw earlier um, uh, by, by the commander previously. So he's got chains on. When they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion, not the commander, but the centurion, this is a different guy, who was standing by. I just love this scene. Paul's all beaten up. Just finished a speech. His body is stretched out with these ropes and they're about to crack these whips on his body and he looks over. <clears throat> Excuse me, sir. Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Now that's a trump card. That's an ace in the hole because it's not lawful. Any, any Roman who would whip A fellow Roman citizen is to die himself. That's a death penalty. You cannot whip a Roman citizen unless they've been tried. And and on a very, um, I should say, a a very extreme case, would a Roman actually be beaten like this? Okay. Uh, What about beatings? Does that not apply for like he was beaten? He was beaten back earlier, but, but they didn't know he was a citizen then. When he pulled that trump card then, Remember how they came to him in Acts 16? Oh, we're so sorry. Please don't tell anyone. Please, so sorry. Okay. And he said they wanted him to leave the city. He goes, uh-uh. I'm not leaving anywhere until you make sure this church in Philippi is safe. So no, they couldn't beat him with rods either. Okay, okay. He pulled the trump card back then, and he's using it to his advantage. That's Roman citizenship. Okay, right back here, though, he was beaten. He didn't use it then. Not yet. <laughs> oh, not yet. Okay. Yeah. He, so the same group are going to be, right. he's going to be facing the same general. Well, it would be different than when he was in Philippi. That was Acts 16, when he was beating rods. Here he's been arrested with chains. He's not even supposed to be put in chains, but he hasn't told him he's a Roman citizen yet. It was unusual for a Jew to be a Roman citizen. And if you were a Jew and a Roman citizen, you didn't go around advertising it. Because that means you're a citizen of the, the nation that's oppressing our nation. Yeah, that? Huh, that's a good question. Um, all I know, all I can tell you, is that if you're found to be lying, it's the death penalty for lying about it. Uh, it's possible also that he had paperwork that you can just reach in and see like a passport. This proves that I am. Possible that he did, maybe he carried that with him, um, but it is known. And even if Paul is going to be killed for lying about it, um, he's about to be killed here. What's the point? You know, just go ahead and say, I'm a Roman citizen, put it off and maybe you get off. But however it was, he was believed. Uh, maybe he had paperwork, like I said, maybe he was just believed. Uh, but he did believe him. Is it lawful for you to discourage a man who's Roman and uncondemned. In other words, you're about to beat me and I haven't even stood trial. When the centurion heard this, verse 26, he went to the commander. He went to the Kiliarch, the leader of a thousand, Claudius Lysis, and he told him, saying, what are you about to do? This man's a Roman. The commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. Again, this man trained under Gamaliel, this Jew of Jews, this uh, Jewish rabbi, is also a Roman citizen, was born that way. The commander answered and said, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. Um, One of the things I learned for the first time here is that you could not just go to a place in Rome, the tax office, and say, I want to become a Roman citizen. How much is it? hundred bucks, here it is. You couldn't do that. It was not for sale, not officially. It was, however, accepted for bribes. And in the reign of Emperor Claudius... It was apparently widespread, mostly by his wife. People were making money under the table. You want to be a Roman citizen? Pay for it. Which is interesting that Lysias, which is a Greek name, this commander, has the name Claudius in front of it, who was the emperor who allowed such bribes in the day. So he takes on his surname, Claudius Lysias. So this guy tells him, the commander came to him and said, probably in a hushed voice, tell me, you're a Roman? Yes. The commander answered, I acquired the citizenship of the large sum of money. In other words, I bribed my way in. How'd you get it? Paul said, I was born a citizen. Which means that Paul's dad and or grandfather were somehow or another involved in some sort of favor to Rome and became citizens. Paul was born into this in the city of Tarsus, in the... Um, the district of Cilicia. And one who's born a citizen actually trumps those who bribed their way in. So now, and you know, Paul doesn't look like that guy. He's been beat up. He's all haggard looking. He's, in fact, up to this point, he spent a week going through purification rites so that he can offer the, the vows for the four men who's under the Nazarite vows. He's probably a mess. But his way he speaks, what he's able to say, everyone backs up. Interesting that Paul can say, "I go on, God sent me far away to the Gentiles and everyone goes crazy. He can say, I was born a citizen and everyone stops. This is a man who, who speaks well and has power in his words. Verse 29, therefore those who were about to examine him immediately let him go. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman because he had him put in chains. He's afraid because the commander who's a high ranking official looking out over Jerusalem during Pentecost has arrested and chained a Roman citizen. He himself could be put to death for such. No wonder he's afraid. And back to Karen's question earlier in act 16, when they beat Paul and Silas with rods, Paul let him do it and he's calculating it. Okay. Tomorrow when they come to set us free, I'm going to tell them who I am and as a favor to me, so that I don't turn them in and they don't lose their own citizenship here, they're going to protect the church we just planted in Philippi. Wise. Look on the overhead. When we look at the power of a personal testimony, I want you to think in terms of your own salvation. God has the power to transform persecutors into apostles and the harshest critics into believers. When Christ moves in our lives, we are never the same. That's why we wonder about people who say they're Christians and they're not at all transformed from what they used to be. Apostle Paul is telling, here's where I used to be, here's where I am now. Our own testimonies are tailored for someone to be moved by them. But note this, not all will be moved. You think you can share your testimony? Let me share my testimony with you. And everyone's going to be changed and impressed? Maybe not. Paul found out that that day. We recall who we once were. We recite how we came to know Christ. I was this person. And then I came to church one day and I heard a preacher or I was out in the park minding my own business and someone got up in my grill and told me about Jesus and I've never been the same. That's how we came to know Christ. And then we rejoice in what God has made us to be in Christ. That's the three points. I just simply want when people come to this church. Um, Recently I've caught through the years, I should say, I've caught a lot of, some flack. Why do you want a testimony? Why do you, why do you want to know? Um, I'm not asking anyone to tell me what they did in great detail in the past. I don't want, I don't, I don't need to know at all your bad things. If you want to tell me, great. It's protected. No one's ever going to see it. But if, if you were a prostitute selling drugs, all you have to say is, I was not walking with Christ. I, I, was, I was into some bad stuff. That works in a testimony. That just summarizes what could be 10 pages. That's who I once was. And then out of nowhere, someone told me about salvation. Someone told me I could have my sins forgiven. Someone reminded me that there's a God and I was transformed. And then the rejoicing along the way, here's what's happened since that day. My life has never been the same. Paul was happy Prior to his conversion. Paul loved what he was doing. When he hated Christians. He persecuted the church. Because he believed that those who were not properly Jewish. Were vermin. That needed to be exterminated. That felt good when I wrote that. Vermin. That's what he felt. I think that's the way he thought of of Gentiles. But he had no conscience in aiding. He had absolutely no conscience I say. In aiding Stephen's death. But God. The worst of the worst. The worst. And when you think, when any of us think that someone is so messed up, just remember, but God, but God, while we were entrenched in our death, laying there dead, there is a God who can bring us to life spiritually. And he did with Paul. I think that's one of the reasons God gives us such a a skid row case in Paul. The only explanation of Paul's transformation is the risen Lord Jesus who appeared to him and changed his heart. The reality of Christ's resurrection caused Paul to reread scripture and he knew scripture to redirect his life according to God's will and to reframe all of his theology. Everything you know about Judaism and you don't believe in the Christ. Once you believe in the Christ, everything about Judaism makes complete sense. That right. An irresistible grace, lady. <laughs> the former Baptist promoting irresistible grace. Praise God. Any more so than any of us were able to resist when God made us alive. What if somebody come alive on the deck of a boat having drowned and say, "Why'd you do that?" Or, "No thanks, I want to stay drowned." No, you come out of it. God foisted himself upon us and gave us life. We weren't there to say no. A factually based testimony is unanswerable since no one can counter our personal experience. That is, unless it stands contrary to facts. And I had to put that statement because Mormons will tell you, I read the book of Mormon. It burned in my chest. Therefore, it's true. Well, that's their personal testimony. You can't say it didn't happen. But if that's not the the basis of truth, is the basis of truth chills on your arm? Is the basis of truth the hair on your back standing up? I know most of you don't have hair on your back. For those of us who do, when the hair on the back stands up, something's happening, right? (laughs) Uh, It's not the Word of God. A burning in the bosom? I'm sorry? You mean the Book of Mormon? They think it is. They think it's the Word of God, and something physical happened to them. So, when we look at things, this is a great thing about Christianity whether the hair on your back, whether you have it or not, stands up or not, Jesus dying on the cross either happened or it didn't. Jesus resurrecting from the tomb either happened or it didn't. It doesn't matter if you, you and I feel it. We'll have days where we go, I don't feel it. So what? It happened. Truth is truth who we were before we knew Christ, how do we encounter Christ, what and who we are now, now that we know Christ, as to who we are now that we know Christ, the question is, how do you handle persecution? What is your witness for Christ like? Was your conversion experience in accordance with the facts of Christ? Or was it just a warm feeling inside? So to say you've come to know Christ and to make your testimony one that I, I'm, I'm changed, I'm different, why? Why? Why are you different? And it all comes back when the Apostle Paul said, because Jesus, I know, appeared to me. I know he was crucified. Paul very, may very well have been one of the Pharisees on the Sanhedrin that had Jesus condemned in the Gospels. We're never told that, but he might have been. He probably was. I saw him die. I saw him alive. When you state facts that are, that are truth, that's what a fact is, <laughs> when we state that, We're basing what we believe on those facts. And if your life has changed, the question is, is it changed based on a fact or a feeling? I mean, you can easily say I was was a product of the 60s and walking around at Woodstock and taking drugs, all that felt good. And all the free lifestyle and what we did, that all felt good. That was great. Uh, That must be true, right? Must be some way of... of, uh, of salvation, What was it back then? It was transcendental meditation and, and taking yourself into another world and take LSD and, and uh, all the other things that accompanied the 60s. Notice I didn't, I didn't add rock music because that's separate. That's a different <laughs> wonderful gift of God. No, that's in quotes. Um, though our testimonies are powerful, there are no guarantee for fruitful responses. Again, once again, when you share your testimony, you share who God is, what Christ is. He is God in the flesh. And then you share your testimony about how it changed you. That doesn't mean anyone's going to believe. As Paul found out, as maybe you have found out. I know I've found that out many times. I've preached the gospel. I've pleaded with people to believe. What I've even like a used car salesman. Now, what do I have to do to put you in this faith today? <laughs> yeah. Still get the scoffers. You realize they were just sitting there being polite, listening to you. Let us accept our situations as God has ordained them as Paul did, knowing he would be persecuted in Jerusalem. Remember, he knew that. I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going there. In spite of the fact that my friends don't want me to go there, I'm going. He never ran away from this, but calmly accepted that as God's will, telling those trying to dissuade him from going to Jerusalem, I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so as I said in the previous slide, what is your view of persecution? Because if you've been led to believe that coming to know Christ is going to bring you a life of pleasure, no problems, no issues, your spouse won't get sick or die early, your child won't die in childbirth, you won't contract a horrible disease, you won't die before you're you're 90, you were lied to or told from a very ignorant person. We are not saved from the world in which we live. We are still susceptible to, that, to everything here. We live in a body that's corruptible. And we're capable of any corruption in, our, in and of ourselves. Don't ever think that you are above that. I always like it when uh, you, know, you, you hear somebody on the news and they go, oh, that person would never do it. They're not capable of such. That's very naive. We are all capable of the worst of the worst. We're all capable of murder. Oh, she would never kill her children. Really? Really? Every mother who is honest could think of multiple occasions <laughs> when they could have and maybe should have. Oh, sure, you don't think about it when Christmas time, everything's good and blah, blah, blah. But we are all capable of the worst of the worst. All of us. How do you handle persecution? Paul said, I know what's coming. I'm ready to go in there, get beat to a pulp, and even die. What's yours? As Paul used his circumstances as an opportunity, may we do the same. Though the crowd gathered to beat and perhaps kill Paul, he turned it into a preaching opportunity. Now that's a changed life. No arguing, no hating. Two more slides. Like Paul, let us be conciliatory toward our persecutors. Instead of hating or threatening them, he courteously addressed them as brethren and fathers. He even empathized with their zealous hatred of him. Let us be found doing as Paul did. Folks, I'm writing this to me <laughs> because I, I have, a, I have a, a way about me that's uh, disagreeable and, and I have to constantly try to push it down. And if you disagree, if you, and I don't mean just with basic things, although that, that too can be true. I mean, if you want to rail against God, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little bit, fi- I get a little fired up. I, I always compare it to, if you're going to talk about my mom, you're going to die. <laughs> you don't talk about my mom. You don't talk about my, my daughter or my, my wife. I'm just kind of that immature, you know, I'll get you for that. Um, Paul is putting himself in their shoes. He understands them. He empathizes over their zealous hatred of him. Let us be found doing as Paul did, blessing those who persecute us and not cursing them, as Romans twelve fourteen says. Just like Jesus, Paul, when reviled, did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Oh, that, that is, that is a reminder. Lance Waldy. Remember that when reviled, don't revile in return. And just to be sure, I'm not out there yelling at anybody. Same way. I just know what I feel. I can control my actions, but what goes on in here, the burning, the anger, the frustration, in such a situation, I, I'm so impressed with Paul, so impressed with Jesus, just allowing what's going on. That did not revile and return. And so, let all that we do be dictated by love. Love number one, as Paul did for Christians, that would cause us to want to serve them with truth. Love for Christians, or I should say, our brethren. Paul loved his Jewish brethren, even the ones that hated him enough to serve them, give them the truth. That's how he served them. Love for our weaker brethren, our other Christians who are weak, who say, well, you can't do this, can't do that. They're legalistic. Uh, Love for them, desiring unity in the church, as Paul sought for his fellow Jews. Love for our enemies, our unsaved friends who might not like us too much. We preach Christ to them out of love. And ultimately, love for God that motivates us to love everyone else. If you don't have that last one, you're not going to have the previous three. Our love for God is really the foundation that dictates how we love others, how we love our spouses, how we love our children, how we love our neighbors, how we love our enemies. Love my enemy or, or someone who's hurt me. Someone, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a friend, someone who's hurt me. I can forgive you. why? Because the foundation of my life is built upon the foundation of christ's forgiveness. He forgave me all my terrible sins. By golly, I can forgive you for saying something bad about me. I can get over that. Christ got over mine. I see that love dictating that when you when you read acts twenty two see the love of the apostle Paul and see a truly transformed man once who once wanted to kill everyone who disagreed with him, now loving those who want to kill him. All right, let me close this in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for our testimonies. Thank you for those of us who know Christ as Lord and Savior. Thank you for opening our eyes and making us alive. Sounds pretty pretty shallow just to say thank you, but I pray, Lord, that the thank you that we utter would be heard in our voices heard in our preaching our sharing would be seen in our lives if put in a situation like the Apostle Paul was that we would boldly stand up preach the truth yes we believe in Jesus of Nazareth not just some guy named Jesus but to specify who we believe in what he did and if it gets us persecution if it gets us killed so be it I pray that we would be bold and courageous what a way to die but that's not the place we live now, Lord. Right now we live in a place where we might be persecuted, we might be ridiculed. May we be at least bold enough to stand up to that. May we treasure our testimonies. Maybe write them out if need be and rejoice over the story that's on a piece of paper of what you did in wretched sinners like us. And may that be the prompting for our worship. Not a song, not our health, although those are wonderful things. May we be prompted to worship based upon another repeated realization that you saved a wretch like us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.